this is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. All right. So, hey, listeners, uh, today you're lucky enough to have uh, Spencer Rapone, who is a, a friend and, and a colleague, uh, I'd like to think, in the movement. Uh, Spencer uh, was an enlisted soldier in the Ranger Battalion, served in Afghanistan, and then received an appointment to West Point. And uh, that's that's one of the more rare ways to get to West Point, to uh, have combat service before you're a cadet. Um, is, is something that's relatively rare and, and highly respected for the most part uh, among the cadets. He uh, graduated from West Point. He was a history major. Um, when I was in the department, he actually graduated. He was known as a, a very astute uh, and dedicated student, for the, uh, to say the least. He was, he was well known. And as Spencer was going to tell you, uh, he caused some waves over this last year when he released photographs of himself um, in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick, uh, as well as the broader movement, uh, stating and written in his hat, communism will win. Uh, for this, the army, uh, immediately began investigations and I'll let him tell the story from there. But, uh, Spencer's, uh, living in New York city now. Um, he, he's, he's definitely carrying on with the movement. He's got so much, uh, just intelligence and experience for someone so young. And so we're really glad to have you, Spencer. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me on. I'm glad to be here. I, I really appreciate that glowing introduction as well. So you've told this story so many times. You know, I, it's one of those things where it probably becomes almost like mythologized even in your own mind. But, right. you know, what do, what do you tell people like when they ask you the ubiquitous question that I'm asking you, which is, you know, what happened and what were the consequences and why, you know, I'm sure you get that question a lot, whether it's in bars or formal settings. Right. Yeah. yeah it's, it's tough because, um, you know, what I did over the last year didn't happen in a vacuum and there's so many, um, experiences, uh, I had in places I've been and, uh, studying, I, I took part in, in the years leading up to, um, you know, uh, almost one year now, September 26th of last year when I first uh, stated those things. But I guess to give the bottom line up front, um, you know, I was coming towards the end of my time in high school. Um, I always kind of had my eye on West Point from like, I guess, my freshman year. It seemed like an interesting thing to do. Uh, I kind of wanted something that wasn't a typical college experience. Um, it was free, which was also uh, very important considering I'm one of six children from a pretty, you know, typical working class Rust Belt family. I'm from Newcastle, Pennsylvania, which is right outside Pittsburgh. So uh, West Point kind of made sense at the time. I, I applied out of high school, got my nomination, but did not get my appointment. So I figured uh, I might as well enlist, um, get some experience there. Uh, whether or not West Point would be in the cards, I figured I could also get college money from the GI Bill. And uh, like a lot of young men in this country, I was Somewhat, you know, I guess seduced to say the least by this, this idea of, you know, war and adventure and uh, everything that that entails. Uh, so, uh, long story short, I, I did quite well in basic training or one station unit training, as it's known in the infantry world. Uh, uh, got the airborne school uh, because I did well in both those things. I went on to RASP, uh, the Ranger Assessment Selection Program, the thing that's replaced RIP. 
uh, passed uh, through there, uh, graduated, got to uh, the 1st Ranger Battalion in Hunter Army Airfield, Georgia, and uh, deployed to Afghanistan uh, in July of 2011. Uh, wasn't there uh, too long because Ranger deployments are only two to four months, um, but when I came back uh, a couple months later, I very much had a sour taste in my mouth with uh, what I experienced, what I saw, what I heard. Um, I didn't really see any connection uh, with uh, the ideals that the Army professed to be upholding uh, in terms of what I partook in overseas. Um, I felt like a big bully who was really just inflicting violence uh, and dominance on one of the most oppressed uh, and marginalized people on this planet and one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, and so I was left with a lot of questions on what I could do. But at that time, um, you know, there was still a part of me that was clinging to, you know, the, these uh, these ideals. And I thought, well, hey, maybe, uh, you know, I always wanted to go to West Point the past few years. Maybe pursuing the officer route uh, would provide me an opportunity to change things from the inside, as the old adage goes. Well, uh, I applied to West Point. Got, uh, got my appointment this time, um, got there in July of 2012, and, you know, it didn't take me too long to realize it was kind of more of the same. There was this, you know, veneer uh, of academia uh, and uh, uh, of an in, and somewhat thing of a, like an intellectual environment, I guess you could say, that kind of, that, that was accommodating to me, and that kind of allowed me to navigate a lot of the more other nonsensical aspects of West Point, especially as a a plebe. Um, but as the years went by there, I kind of started to realize this was far more structural than a few, you know, bad actors or poor leaders that I had while at the Ranger Battalion. And, you know, I was, uh, as you said, a history major and I studied the history of the Middle East in particular. And, you know, especially uh, understanding the role of um, Western imperialism in the region, you know, from the British and the French to, you know, the United States inheriting that colonialist mantle. Uh, I started to realize I had quite a contradictory uh, existence and I had to resolve that somehow. Um, and I also uh, was radicalizing uh, in, the, in the political realm. So all of that together, uh, by the time it came, uh, or by the time affirmation came around, um, I was kind of stuck because I didn't want to, you know, leave West Point uh, and then possibly get thrown back to the enlisted ranks. Um, and there was also a part of me that thought, hey, you know, maybe I could still change things within my small uh, area of influence. Um, so I, you know, I finished it out. Um, my senior year, I kind of, my first year, I kind of ran into some trouble, uh, as you're aware, <laughs> Danny. Uh, but right. I made it through, graduated. And, um, you know, I was just trying to hit the ground running and Fort Benning and, and uh, Bullock and, when I got there, though, this was in the midst of the 2016 election. So in the back of my mind, I, you know, there was definitely some social and political forces at work. Uh, I knew that would would lead to me having to make a major decision soon if I was authentic in my political and philosophical beliefs. Uh, and so uh, when Trump got elected in, in uh, November of uh, 2016, that for me was, you know, although, you know, uh, President Obama Bush, Clinton before him, all, all of them upheld U.S. imperialism and pretty much had on the macro the same foreign policy agenda and so on. But for me, Trump marked a particular political moment or, or shift, you should say. Uh, and I was like, I, I needed to 
you know, find some method or, or, or some manner of, of resisting that I think would make an impact. And it took me a while uh, to figure out what that would be. But uh, when Colin Kaepernick um, initially began his protest in 2016, I was very supportive. And then when he essentially, you know, got blacklisted and uh, wasn't able to compete, lost his career and he always lost everything uh, in terms of his professional life for speaking truth to power, you know, in, in the fall of 2017 and Trump's talking about it now and other right wing politicians, I felt, well, maybe I could do my small part. So I posted those images of me from graduation with, you know, the hashtag veteran for Kaepernick. And from there, things snowballed. As you said, I was under investigation for several months. Uh, I tried to resign my con uh, my commission in uh, February of this year, actually, with the caveat that, that I received nothing less than a general under honorable conditions. I wasn't even asking for an honorable. I just wanted a general. But they kicked it back in um, April and told me I could either choose a board of inquiry or submit my unqualified resignation. So I decided to resign my commission of, in June of this year. And here I am now. Well, I mean, I, when you discuss the structural impediments and how they conflict with the individual soldiers sort of mentality of um, doing the best in the small frame that you're given, I, I've i felt that same experience on a lesser level, but throughout 18 years now of um, being involved in this machine. And I think that, Henry, you probably agree, in so many ways, that is the struggle of any quasi intellectual or, or even just thoughtful soldier or officer, you know, um, yeah. and, and it, I think it could be damaging to one psyche, in fact, to fight it for so long. Yeah, too much. Uh, I know when I came in, I gave everything too much benefit of the doubt, you know, is that I, I assumed I would have good leaders. I assumed I would have acceptable missions, uh, moral missions, Spencer, you know, things that I could look at and say, this is legitimately helping someone. And I'm not mm -hmm. just pulling a trigger for a government. And I, I have the same process too, although is that my time, I, I, I didn't see nearly as much carnage. I didn't know most of the things that I know now until years and years later because it just wasn't part of my time in Iraq. But yeah, no, it's just, it's just giving that blank space and it gets filled up with hubris and fucking death. Yeah, um, and I, th I like how you said but, um, you kept giving everything the benefit of the doubt because uh, that's you know that was so much uh, my story in terms of like you know you go through basic right this is bullshit but things will get better when I get to yeah yeah next, you follow on training you get there oh this is bullshit but when I get to my unit it'll get and you get to your you know it's one thing eventually you reach a point of like okay maybe uh, there's a pattern here that I'm I'm tending to ignore <laughs> when I'm coming face to face with it. It's interesting how you mentioned Colin Kaepernick and how he really is, you know, not, not only blacklisted, but loses a, a pretty promising career and, and livelihood to a certain extent. And, and, and you lost something as well. I mean, even though you were no longer certainly in love with the army by the time you left, I mean, you were, you know, they denied the qualified resignation and they put you through some drama. I mean, stuff that, that affects anyone. And yet at the same time, you look at the massive failures both uh, tactical and in many cases moral of like high-ranking generals and how little is ever taken from them, how everyone in the old boys club of senior officers just gets to retire honorably or is, you know, uh, kindly and softly sort of shuffled away. And you compare that with 
with activism, and it's apparent that the machine, whether it be the U.S. government, the media market, uh, or, or even a National Football League, the machine is much harder on activism and dissent than it ever is on uh, massive incompetence uh, or moral failings near the top of the organization. Yeah, I mean, without question, uh, even while I was at uh, West Point, I was always, you know, perplexed with why figures like McChrystal, Petraeus, and Abizade, they were still respected um, as seen as, as successful and uh, uh, successful officers that you even want to emulate uh, on some level. Uh, I remember we had this one uh, football game we were forced to go to at Yale, and McChrystal has some position there, and we were all forced to listen to him speak to us, and I'm like, you know, this is the guy, in addition to his litany of war crimes, I mean, he, he was spearheading the, the cover-up and the lies about Pat Tillman you know, being killed by friendly fire. Uh, you know, and there's countless other examples. And for me, it was such a contradiction. Uh, and, you know, we were taught, hey, we want critical thinkers here. We don't just want you know, mindless drones. But they, they claim that. But then when you put any of that critical thought uh, into practice, you're absolutely crushed. Uh, whereas you can have any number of, you know, the, the generals or senior ranking officers who could either say something or, or do something uh, that's abominable. And at the worst, they might get quietly retired with full benefits and then land a position with some defense contractor or something. Yeah, it's it's disturbing. Um, I think it does, again, speak to the structural rather than individual bad apple argument. And uh, it's... It's it's definitely uh, purposeful uh, the way they go after dissent, and uh, and it's no accident that and it's and it's not just the military. It's all these large organizations, and we'll get to that uh, in a bit. Yeah. But I want to give Henry a, uh, an opportunity to ask his first question. So, I in reading about you online, I saw that you come from a multi generation military family, just like I do, and I was wondering about. How did your time growing up solidify for you that you you were someone who wanted to join, who wanted to be part of the military? And how do you look back on that time now that you're off of, you know, the Empire Express, so to speak? Yeah, uh, well, I wouldn't really characterize uh, my family's uh, multi-generational because for me that engenders like a certain, I guess, um, like patronage or officers or something. I did have a, one of my grandfathers fought in World War II, uh, was in the Battle of Luzon in the Philippines. My other grandfather uh, was a Marine in Korea uh, in the early 50s. But aside from that, I really don't have um, much of a military family. I had an uncle who was in the Air Force during Vietnam. But, uh, you know, other than that, it really, outside of that, there wasn't a military presence. But that little bit of of service time that my grand, uh, my grandparents had and some other extended relatives, uh, even though my family, um, politically was, I guess you could call like labor Democrat. Uh, I would characterize them most effectively. There's always this veneer of patriotism, you know, you know, my grandpa would always go to the veterans day parade. Uh, you go to the Memorial day event, uh, things of that nature. Uh, so, uh, from a young age, you know, we were told to, you know, respect the flag and all this stuff. Um, but when I first was actually looking at joining, um, you know, a, a lot of my family, they were very much enthusiastic about me going to West Point. But when it came time to me actually enlisting and because, you know, I was a, a gung-ho 18-year-old kid and I wanted to go to the infantry, uh, they were not too down with that. P 
piece. So it was uh, it was rather contradictory. Uh, but there's no question that um, aside from the family element, uh, anyone uh, in my age and generation who grew up in the post 9-11 era, I mean, we were absolutely shaped uh, by various cultural and social pressures. Oh, if yes. not to join the military, then to at least, you know, uh, respect it or, or, you know, display some sort of reverence whenever it, you know, comes up. Yeah, it's, it's amazing the extent to which our public space and our entertainment space has become so hyper-nationalistic and militarist. I mean, um, as someone who grew up really just before the 9-11 attacks, you know, I, I went to West Point on July 2nd of 01, so uh, I thought I was going to Kosovo. It turns out I was going to a career of war. Um, but watching something as simple as the NFL or the Major League Baseball, the MLB, and how those entities of just sort of um, public adulation have changed since before 9-11 to after. I mean, every single game today is, is a martial celebration, uh, right. whether it's soldiers on the field or um, firefighters, cops and soldiers, uh, American flags bigger than stadiums. Um, that was a relatively rare thing prior to 9-11, not to say there was no public militarism, but it was generally confined to Veterans Day and Memorial Day until 9-11, and it seems that it's really gone off off the rails. So I, I'm, re I'm interested in your experience because as someone who went to high school um, in the shadow, sort of, of the 9-11 attacks and uh, the invasion of Iraq, it, it is rather um, different and must have had its own sort of uh, pressures in terms of, you know, let me join, let me do my part. Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, I was, um, you know, I was in fourth grade when 9-11 occurred. And, you know, just seeing, um, it, you know, it was shocking uh, to a lot of people for a, a variety of reasons. But I remember, uh, you know, two years later, uh, my parents and most of my relatives, uh, although they, you know, they were horrified what happened with 9-11, even, you know, they realized with no military experience that, you know, it's like, okay, Afghanistan it was kind of confusing what we were really doing there. It was, there wasn't really any uh, clarity as to the connections between, you know, the majority of the hijackers being of Saudi citizenship. And then there's this nebulous idea of Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, which, and, you know, the U.S. media superstructure kind of gets rolled up into one, you know, Islamophobic threat. But aside from that, you know, then Iraq starts coming down the pike. And, uh, you know, most of the people within my social circle were, were quite horrified uh, with it. But it was always confusing for me because although they were horrified, there was still this, you know, again, this reverence and respect that you show uh, the military. And, you know, as I, you know, uh, got older and by the time I got to high school, I kind of just internalized that. I was like, you know, whether you like it or not, people are doing their part. And if you live in a country... Uh, that becomes as hyper-nationalist and hyper-militaristic as this one, you start to wonder what your place is in that, and then you start to say, hey, well, hey, what am I doing uh, in this pursuit of uh, liberty and freedom and all these other so-called American values? And, and it leads you to, to make certain decisions, and it leads you to uh, develop a thought process that always questions uh, not only um, your patriotism, but even your masculinity in a sense. And so for, you know, youthfully exuberant uh, young males, it, it's quite an enticing and a seductive paradigm, especially if you come from something of a middle class or a working class background. And 
even if you might do well in school, the, the, the financial prospects of, you know, education in this country are rather daunting. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of aspects that, that lead you to joining. I mean, again, we talk about the, the patriotic or the ideological factor here. But, you know, think about the, the financial crash of 2008 and, and how many right. families got crushed by that, especially where I'm from, you know, in the Rust Belt, Western Pennsylvania, you know, uh, Eastern Ohio, all that region from like Youngstown to Pittsburgh got absolutely gutted. So again, I mean, there's so many factors that, that play a part there. But uh, in the NFL thing, too, it's funny because even though, you know, you know, 9-11 happens in 2001, I don't think they even started doing the uh, the just insane pregame patriotic uh, rituals until like, I want to say like 2008 or 2009. So this is quite recent um but because our country has you know the cultural and historical memory of like a jar of you know butter we <laughs> like oh yeah it's always been that way yeah but no right. totally it's something that just kind of breaks your brain thinking about and it's horrifying so we talked about structural problems and and that takes me to my next my next question the united states uh, I hate the term American exceptionalism because it's so often been a veneer that cloaks militarism, racism, and many other things. But there are certain things in the world that the United States is fairly exceptional at. Uh, one of them is gun violence deaths. Uh, another one is having a higher infant death rate than almost every other modern country. So there's some really difficult ones. But two things that are certain that the United States does more than anyone else is, number one, uh, basing and militarism around the world. No other country is even close to how many foreign military bases we have, so that kind of cloaks militarism. And the second one is hypercapitalism. And I know that you've politically radicalized over the years. So what I'm interested in is your general thoughts on the connections between the, the hyper late-stage capitalism of the you know American 21st century moment and our wars overseas and the militarism that you see. Yeah, certainly. Um, so... Uh, for me, when I was trying to understand, you know, my own experiences, it started from uh, analyzing things at the tactical level or the personal level. And I was like, OK, what was my role over there? And I was like, OK, I was part of a machine gun squad tied to a platoon, tied to a company battalion and so on. And I was like, OK, so what on the macro level are we doing here? And I'm like, so we were told that we're we're fighting these elements of this terrorist network known as the Haqqani. And they are an imminent threat uh, to America. And I was thinking back and I was like, you know, I never really encountered anyone that was an imminent threat to America when I was overseas. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, a lot of other veterans uh, are saying this. Um, and even before the United States was involved in the current conflicts, you know, for a long time now, this has been a thing. And, and so I started to study uh, political economy uh, more intently, you know, I've, I consulted the forbidden texts of Marx and, and Lenin and others. And uh, also, though, um, I read Stan Goff, who is uh, an Army veteran of over 20 years, who pretty much did everything you can in the Special Operations Universe. And he talked about his time in Haiti uh, and, and other places. And it, it comes to a point when uh, I recognized, um, you know, my own analysis was that the United States, uh, in particular, in the pursuit of these uh, capitalist schools, they're seeking to um, uh, expand their hegemony. 
because wars uh, such as they are in Afghanistan, Iraq, um, creeping into Syria and across, you know, Africa right now, and then bases all over the world, it's very much uh, profitable uh, for a particular class uh, of people. And so I think back again, uh, because my political education and philosophical education coincided uh, with my time at West Point. Again, it's, it's a very dialectical process being in an environment such as that, coming out with these uh, perspectives. But I remember in my intro to psychology course, my uh, plebe year, I asked my teacher, you know, sir, what are we really doing in Afghanistan? You know, you're a special forces officer. Clearly, you've seen it all. And I'll never forget, he told me he was having this, I guess, private forum with um, uh, General Dempsey, you know, former, of course, chairman of Joint Chiefs. And someone asked him that question. And he said, to be honest, uh, I really can't answer that for you. And I was just like, so you're telling me the highest general in the land doesn't have any semblance of a, of a strategic goal uh, in, in terms of what the United States Army or, and the rest of the military is doing there. And so you start to realize that, uh, you know, the so-called power elite, uh, even the generals, um, they're complicit. But really, this isn't just one or two bad people that you could vote out of office or, you know, you know, sweep the down ballot elections and maybe things will change, which, while that might be important, this is a structural phenomenon. OK, it's beyond any one or two people. And what we have here is a system that operates off of the profit motive. And in many ways, it's uh, a death drive uh, of sorts. And the reason why capitalism is perpetually in crisis is because it seeks out uh, to, to profit over anything else. And so whether that's uh, housing speculation or whether that's endless war, they're directly related and part of that, uh, that profit-making process. And so uh, in terms of late-stage capitalism in the United States, you know, places uh, like Afghanistan and Iraq, to have them involved uh, in this endless war is very profitable for companies such as Raytheon or, or Boeing or Lockheed Martin. And then you start to see, oh, maybe that's the reason why a lot of former generals and high-ranking officers get a seat at the table with a lot of these companies, because it's a very profitable business war. And again, this isn't exactly uh, a groundbreaking analysis. I, the, the classic thing historians always do is say, you know, this is uh, either something that's really old that you're saying is new, or this is something new that you're saying is really old. But Smedley Butler uh, articulated this nearly 100 years ago. But there is a, I guess, specifically for our time, though, there is a rather hyper-intensified version of it. And with uh, what's happening uh, to the environment and, you know, climate change, it's far more daunting than it ever has been. Uh, but it, this is just, you know, the same game with a 21st century flair, uh, if you will. Oh, absolutely. That's great. Uh, th I think that that comment or that vignette about General Dempsey not really being able to honestly answer to a group of mid-range officers what we're doing in Afghanistan is just so telling. And I'm glad you used that example. And and Dempsey, of all the generals, I mean, is, is actually one of the smarter than than average bears. You know, yeah. it, it, he's not just any general. He's a general who taught English at West Point and is oh. a little bit more thoughtful than your average uh, a knuckle dragging, you know, guy who just, you know, wants to fight and kill like he's a platoon leader and in well into his 30th and 40th year of service. So, he, you know, this is a, a fairly astute guy. And, and that is a very telling vignette. So um, yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up. And uh, it, it 
it, it, nothing should shock me at this point, but that did a little. <laughs> even yep. even now, thinking about that for a second, I imagine it must have had a profound impact on you as a plebe at West Point. Oh, without question. I mean, like you said, it's, it's one thing if um, a crystal or uh, Kaslin or any of these other, you know, typical run-of-the-mill combat arms guy who's a general but still wants to be a PL, as you said. But when someone who actually is something of an intellectual, especially with, you know, who inhabits the ranks of the army uh, at those higher echelons, I mean, that was uh, uh, exceptionally uh, telling to me at that time. And it always, that's why it stuck with me to this day. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, just left-leaning veterans, left-leaning service members. Mm -hmm. I feel like that we get so much pushback when we're in service well, and out of service too. But when, when we're actually in service, I think it's the worst. And it, despite all the searches, services screeching about not interfering with personal beliefs, you know? Yeah. So I heard this awesome quote from Vincent Clare recently, and I keep thinking about it a lot. It's hard to make a man understand something when his paycheck depends on him not understanding it. And I know the, like the reasons I voted for Bush in 2004 and it had very much to do with being a soldier. I, I didn't see it at the time as an act of political power on my part, but a vote for the necessary support that I felt the army needed and that president Bush was going to provide. I, I didn't look past it. How do we get service members and veterans to look past it, to, to see the reality of our dominance around the globe? past any any self-serving need to protect what they may consider to be a job which the three of us now recognize as being an active cog in an endless war machine uh just to make sure i got the question you, you broke up a little you're asking how do we get uh service members that are um passive or maybe not willing uh to speak out to understand what their role is in the power relations of war? Is that what you asked, Henry? Uh, uh, yes, and and how do we how do we how do we distill that education? You know, is is that okay. it, we're you know we're talking about like the the patriotism at, with the NFL and everything, mm -hmm. and the layers upon layers of subterfuge that an ordinary person who has no military experience would have to drag through. But I'm thinking about our brothers and sisters that lived all this stuff and now they've gone yeah. on to other things in their lives and it's not an issue for them. Okay. Uh, so I, I think um, when it comes to, like you said, instilling that education and, and having someone come to that, that moment of, of consciousness, um, it's difficult. Uh, one, because of, of all the pressures around them and two, because they themselves uh, partake in that and maybe even pressuring others. Um, and unfortunately, you know, you can't force anyone uh, to come to a conclusion. You know, they had to make it on their own. But oh, yeah. I think for me, you know, educating uh, people and, and having uh, uh, these moments of, of uh, understanding happens on the molecular level um, right now. Uh, in the United States, we are not in a revolutionary situation. You know, it's not like uh, 74 in Portugal. It's not like 1917 in Russia. Um, we have a long way to go before there's any um, radical sweeping moment. And it's, you know, I don't believe in any type of teleology. So there's no telling when it might happen. It might happen tomorrow. It might happen in 100 years. But I think if, again, you interact with people on, on that molecular level, you open up space uh, for that dialogue uh, and that critical thought. 
Um, from my own experiences, when I was at West Point, me and a couple of my other cohorts uh, in the history department and other sympathetic uh, cadets, you know, we had some interest uh, in, in uh, socialist politics and leftist thinkers and philosophy. And, and so we would uh, have our own little reading groups. Uh, we try to make time for that. We'd meet and we'd discuss and we'd debate. Um, and it's by no means was it a sanctioned club or anything, but we organized it, uh, like I said, molecularly. And when I say that, I mean one-to-one, and then others come uh, and join you. And, and by word of mouth, eventually you have something that spreads and turns into a small collective of sorts. And then even when we graduated and we were all scattered across the country, whether we had you know various branches assigned to us or it was because we are at different posts, we still would make time at least every two to three weeks to meet uh, and discuss these ideas uh, and these topics. And now, given my... my experiences and my personality because that's always a factor too i think in politics that we sometimes ignore i'm a little bit more of a i guess confrontational and provocative person so that uh, led to me taking actions in the manner i did now i know there are a lot of soldiers out there uh, both officer and enlisted who are very much sympathetic to what i espouse and you know what we all you know espouse on some level here uh but for them it might be a bit more difficult um uh, there's no question that part of why I was able to, I think, have some degree of a platform and, and success is because, like, you know, like it or not, in the military, this idea of, you know, quote unquote, combat experience is a factor, which is stupid, but that offers some sense of legitimacy when you try to speak out. Um, and so for others who might not have that, that might feel that they'll get silenced immediately and not have any sense of legitimacy. I don't think that's true. But again, a lot of people feel that way. We have to, you know, grapple with our existing uh, material conditions. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that if you're in the military right now, um, there's always a way to resist. That doesn't necessarily mean speaking out. Uh, it can mean conscientious objector status. Or, you know, it might just mean equipping yourself with a critical mind and just trying to survive and steal what you can and learn what you can while you're in the system and, and get out on the other side without being too mangled. Because whether you just did basic training, was in for you know two months and got out for some reason, or whether you were in for 20 years, you're, you come out mangled. That's part of it. You know, that's part of the process of getting broken down. But I think that a, a sense of uh, political education is something that could always happen, no matter how bleak or or um, oppressive the environment might be. And if you, you have even one to two people equipped uh, with a critical mind, I truly think that that can win the day. And given that we uh, are starting to see, slowly but surely, more and more veterans speak out, and I think we're in the early stages of a renewed anti-war movement, I think that that kind of validates uh, my claim there. And of course, maybe in some ways it's it's too soon to tell. But I truly, uh, again, I truly believe that on the molecular level, having those conversations and stealing that education is what's going to build us uh, the collective power and the consciousness to have a larger uh, mass movement to resist uh, the United States imperialistic war machine. Sounds great, man. I uh... mm-hmm. I have this uh, group that I attend here in the Portland area sometimes called uh, Vetspar. And okay. it's, uh, they bring together uh, war vets like us with civilians 
Um, you oh, know, some, some of them are, are family members who maybe lost somebody or just, just sense, mm-hmm. sense the horror and what's going on. You know, there are uh, people that are solvent veterans, a uh, guy named Gary, who's a Vietnam veteran. Um, yeah. And the, the, I, it, it's such a great time because you have all these varying opinions who have no, very little similar experience. You know, different generations, different ages, and, and everybody can just put it out there. And I, I, I just love to see that, that like as you, as you mentioned about being on the molecular, molecular level, that that's how you get to people. That's how yeah. you change hearts and minds. I hate that phrase, but Absolutely. it's true. So. You know, Spencer, Henry asked you just about left-leaning veterans in general, and it got me to thinking – um, two things, and one of them is actually just a, a very short question. I think you know, I need the answer to. But uh, we talked uh, two or three pods ago about um, how the DoD computer network, which you're very familiar with, um, <laughs> has firewalls against certain websites uh, for different oh, yeah. reasons. And if you go to one of these evil websites, um, it'll say blocked, and then it'll even give you a reason. It'll say um, justification colon or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, I write regularly for Tom Dispatch, which is a left leaning but very, very sort of scholarly, almost more so than the it, It's not exactly Pravda. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's very long form, 2,500 word minimum pieces. It, it, anyway, it's blocked now on the DoD network for the first time ever. I've been reading it for 10 years. Uh, and the reason that was given, the justification, is hate and racism. And so I said, man, that's really strange because I've been reading Tom Dispatch for 10 years, and I've been writing there for two years, and there is no hate or racism allowed because Tom is a brutal editor. Right. So then I was like, well, what about the intercept? Just go to the intercept. You know, do some really great reporting over there. Blocked. So I thought, hmm, well, it can't just be because these are left leaning sites. They must be blocking anything controversial. So I said, let me check out Breitbart. Totally free and clear. Yep. I said, well, what about InfoWars, which is like beyond, it's not even right wing, it's more conspiratorial madness. Yeah. Totally allowed. And so that got me thinking. You know, Henry asked you about what it's like. How how do we as left-leaning officers exist in our space and how to do it? Let me ask you this. If inside your hat you had written, make America great again, or if you had written, fascism will win, do you think that you would have left the army on the same discharge that you did? Uh, Absolutely not. Uh, I think at worst, um, it would have been some type of like localized administrative um, action taken against me, and that would have been it. Um, And I say this because... Uh, the Hampton Institute in 2014 published um, uh, this uh, study on rising uh, white supremacy and neo-Nazi uh, thought uh, in the U.S. And part of one of their sections was on uh, the military. And they posted uh, that photo, I think most of us have seen by now, of that uh, Marine Scout Sniper unit who were posing with a flag with two sig runes, which was, you know, the symbol of the Waffen SS. Um, right. And so you have that. Um, uh, following Trump's election, you had this, uh, I think, this uh, one of this, these Navy SEAL team. Uh, uh, they, they were flying the, the MAGA flag or Trump flag on one of their vehicles. Um, and I, I think most recently there's a, a group of um, military personnel posing with, uh, with a MAGA flag. Um, so... There's been so many examples of of military personnel espousing a, a far right political line, but because of uh, the United States uh, and its economic and political system, such as it is, 
Uh, that's uh, permissible. I mean, Noam Chomsky once said that, that the America, American political spectrum goes from center to very far right. And I think the military is a great case study uh, in understanding that. And you need to look no further than uh, who we honor and uh, deify uh, in the military. I mean, at West Point in particular, you still have uh, a barracks named after Lee. He's still, you know, honored as this perfect cadet and soldier. You know, you have uh, the Reconciliation Plaza, which upholds a white supremacist narrative of the Civil War. Um, the majority of military bases are named after Civil War generals. So it's, it's funny because not only were they abominable politically, philosophically, as human beings, but they actually were pretty shitty generals, too, and actually sucked. Uh, most right. Of the time. Yeah. Yeah. But, there's 11. There's 11 bases named after Confederate generals. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the military is an environment uh, that fosters uh a certain type of uh, right-wing political paradigm, because uh, the ha- the hallmarks of of you know far-right politics, uh, one of the most distinguishing ones is the dehumanization of the other, and from day one in basic combat training, that is instilled in you so that you can effectively uh, you know close with, engage, and destroy the enemies of the United States of America. So. You know, if you internalize uh, a lot of those values and a lot of those um, ideas that makes you a successful soldier, unfortunately, uh, that leads you to the right a lot of times because you don't do any sort of self-reflection or self-interrogation. Because the moment you start doing that, the moment you start critically grappling with what you were told, what you were taught, and you actually engage in even the smallest level of introspection, you start to see things in a new light. And you start to say, hey, wait a minute, I actually have a lot more in common with these people I'm told are beneath us than I do with any of these dipshit generals or high ranking officers who are telling me to do this. It's like, I want to, you know, be with my family. I want to make sure they're safe and have food on the table. It's like, aren't these guys just doing that in, in the same way? And aren't they just put in a bad situation that's kind of out of their control? And so when you when you confront those um, those aspects of it, I think that's when you start to understand. And, and again, Right-wing politics uh, in the military are a result of both the way you're you're trained and programmed, but also uh, how the United States carries out its foreign policy, um, excuse me, its foreign policy agenda overseas. And as we're starting to see domestically, with how some of the police forces are starting to adopt certain military tactics and uh, equipment and so on. But, yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's it's it, it's really shocking. Um, it's shockingly obvious that left-wing dissent or left-wing symbolism uh, will be treated uh, far more harshly, as you've demonstrated from several examples, including your own, than than any sort of right-wing or even white supremacist um, dissent, which which is basically swept under the rug uh, for the most part. And you know that became apparent to me in my own case of being investigated for writing. I'm quite certain that if all of my articles were wildly MAGA, pro-Trump, and even further to the right, that I probably would have never been even investigated, let alone mm-hmm. found to have commit any sort of uh, violation of the ECMJ. So yeah, yeah just a, I think it's an important question. Your answer is really, um, really interesting, but also disturbing. Right. No, it's it's, it's uh, quite uh, unsettling, uh, especially because you start to think of who... Uh, 
operates at these positions of, of, you know, the higher ranks and who can, you know, just completely control the lives of hundreds of soldiers underneath them. Uh, and then you, you understand why uh, this repressive apparatus works in the way it does and how even the smallest of left-wing dissent can just completely ruin someone's life. Um, and, you know, like what happens then if a, if a lower ranking individual decides to speak out and they don't yet have an education, they don't yet, yet have uh, some type of platform and they have a vindictive uh, commander, I mean, they can have their, their life completely ruined. Uh, so it's, it's exceptionally disturbing. Um, tell us, uh, tell us about your new podcast, Eyes Left. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Mike Preisner, who's also a uh, rather you know prominent uh, anti-war veteran, um, he was uh, an enlisted man uh, in Iraq. Uh, he was in from a one to five, I believe. Um, but he got out and, and threw himself into uh, various uh, anti-war uh, activism, particularly with Iraq veterans against the war, which is now about face. Um, but Mike, uh, I had watched his uh, winter soldier testimonial shortly after graduating uh, from West Point, and it really struck me. And so he was always someone I kind of carried on a correspondence with then uh, uh, in the coming days, especially when I uh, you know, came out publicly. And uh, after, you know, the, the second media frenzy happened in the beginning of the summer and I was out in a civilian again, I was just kind of decompressing back home in uh, Western PA. And he messaged me and, and said, um, you know, I have this idea of a podcast I've been toying around with. And after hearing you speak, I think it'd be a, a good fit uh, for my co-host. And, and he asked me, you know, like, you know, let me know if you want to be on the show and uh, get back to me. So I was like, okay, let me give me a few days here to consider it. And, you know, I knew that uh, by that time, um, there's quite a, uh, quite a few podcasts out there, particularly left wing podcasts. Um, and then militarily speaking, of course, there's uh, what a hell of a way to die. Um, Nate and Francis and Adrian, I'm friends with them. And then of course you guys, uh, I've been keeping tabs on you guys too. So I was like, well, how are we going to fit in here? And Mike kind of explained it to me that, um, you know, what you guys are doing, what the hell of a way guys are doing is important. But we wanted to fill a little bit more of a, of a different role, in particular because of uh, the manner in which uh, I got out and Mike's own uh, political uh, platform uh, that he has. You know, he's a longtime member of PSL, the Party for Socialism and Liberation. I'm in the DSA, um, and we're both very much associated uh, with those uh, political organizations. And we thought that because of our, I, I guess, um, our partisan uh, uh, personhood that we uh, inspire, that maybe uh, left-wing veterans or left-leaning or even just critical uh, veterans or active duty personnel who might be kind of sick of the military process, if we could offer them space uh, and uh, a show that brings light uh, to these uh, experiences, uh, these grievances, but also uh, explains and demonstrates that it is possible to be uh, a dissenter and it is possible to come out on the other side and, you know, have a whole other life that isn't beholden uh, to the, the repressive functions uh, of the military. And so uh, one, you know, Mike kind of explained that all to me and told me, you know, what the ultimate goal was, I was like, absolutely, uh, I'll get on board. And since then, you know, we've 
we'll do our own analysis of Afghanistan and such as you guys do, but we'll also, you know, interview um, uh, anti-war veterans. But most importantly, uh, we want ourselves to be seen as people that if you're in the military right now, you know, we provide our both our show's email and our personal emails. You can reach out to us. We'll help you work through whatever process you feel is um, necessary or fitting for your own situation uh, to get out of the military. And uh, ultimately, uh, we just want to show that, hey, I recently, you know, spoke out against the United States military and against capitalism and militarism. And I'm still here and I got my humanity back. But Mike did that, you know. 13 years ago, and he's unscathed, and there's so many more of us uh, than those in power would have you believe. So that's really what it comes down to. It comes down to showing that you can dissent and, and come out on the other side, and that there are people who are willing to take you in and welcome you with open arms in this mass movement that we're all trying to create in some way or another. Yeah, it's great. It's really such an, an in intersectional movement or at least it ought to be and yes. uh, some of these some of these disparate parts you know really should be coming on uh, as one whole and i think that like you being on our podcast uh as well as some of you know we we kind of cross-pollinate with uh, other organizations that we are or are not affiliated with that i don't really speak about on the pod but uh right. there, you know there's an opportunity for for intersectionality there that you know, you said you think that the anti-war movement is maybe uh, burgeoning or growing uh, or, or getting a second win, and I hope that's true um, because now is the time. Because if not now, when? Which kind of brings me to my follow -up final question, and it's a it's a dispiriting one, but I think it's something we have to talk about. You are an Afghan war veteran. You were an Afghan war veteran before you were a West Pointer. I mean, this is right. something you experienced in 2011. I was there as well in 2011. Next year, um, children born after 9-11 uh, will be joining the military, and undoubtedly some uh, of those will be sent to Afghanistan. In 2018, September 2018, almost uh, 17 years to the day that we first dropped Rangers into Afghanistan, where do you see the Afghan war going, and uh, what sort of predictions do you have for U.S. policy in that area? Well, given the past 17 years, uh, the easiest prediction to make uh, would be that things are just going to continue on the same path uh, they have. Um, but I think in saying that, and that's quite a bleak and despairing paradigm, as you just said, I think that my study of history shows that nothing can go on forever that inflicts this much harm, pain, and suffering on so many people. Eventually, something has to break. Um, and that isn't being uh, teleological. It might break in a way that is quite horrifying. Um, and when eventually we hit our next economic crisis, and, and again, that's always tied to the, to the war business in this country. But when we hit the next crisis point, that might look like, you know, we're all horrified by Trump, but what do we do when a more refined Trump comes down the pike? That's, for me, the more unsettling thought. But in moments such as those, um, it is up for us uh, on the left to channel that energy and to strike when the iron is hot and carve out a space of resistance that could kind of uh, take back 
and, and reclaim uh, the the political forces uh, in in this country. Um, you know, Afghanistan, I think, is the classic example of imperial hubris. You have uh, a hegemon that has been just absolutely defeated and embarrassed over there and they have no coherent thought of what's next but you'll have generals going on tv and giving presentations talking about you know how many people you know they've killed and how this is somehow winning the war even though you know the taliban is more entrenched than it ever has been uh but i think that eventually uh you know we're gonna reach another crisis point of sorts uh, and again, I think things like Afghanistan and Iraq, they don't exist in a vacuum. All of these economic and uh, sociopolitical structure are linked together. And I think within the next five to 10 years, we're going to have a moment that we on the left uh, either seize or ignore at our own peril. And if we seize it, which I think we can because we are seeing, uh, like I said, a burgeoning anti-war movement spring up. We're seeing ideas outside the political norm of the last 50 years start to prop up. Uh, you know, I, th I think Bernie Sanders is a good example of that. I'm of the persuasion that uh, he's certainly not <laughs> an avowed uh, socialist like people who are, uh, I guess, more radical might hope. But he still represents something that's exceptionally compelling. Uh, he allows socialism to be part of the discourse again, and it's terrifying some of those in power. Um, and, you know, there's even a part of me that thinks he might be more radical than he lets on, but he's just playing the Washington game. But regardless, it's not about any one figure. Because of something like that campaign, uh, you, you had hundreds of thousands of activists or people who had never been activists before getting into that um that political process trying to bring about some sort of social movement to make the lives of the masses better. You know, I'm a member of the DSA. Our membership has surged to 50,000, but so many other organizations have seen an uptick. And outside of organizations, people are frustrated. Uh, and again, to tie it all back to Afghanistan, um, Trump won the election, not because he was a political mastermind, but because the Democratic Party propped up the most, you know, just polarizing, uh, despised candidate they can. They propped up the only person who probably could have lost to Trump. Um, but the reason he won is because of a lack of voter turnout, because of a lack of political enfranchisement. Uh, and Afghanistan is this uh, the situation that has just done nothing but cause harm to people in this country, but, you know, especially to those who live in Afghanistan. And I think that if the left can coherently grapple with a mass movement that centers anti-imperialism, then we could put a stop uh, to uh, this forever war, as we call it. But for me, what really is going to spearhead that is veterans themselves speaking out, whether active duty or you're out of the military. If we could get enough military personnel of any stripe to speak out against the war, then I think that can truly be a part of a larger mass movement that puts an end to these senseless, horrifically violent conflicts. Yeah, I really, I hope you're right. And I think earlier you mentioned that whether for good or for ill, veterans do carry a certain, um, you know, level of respect in society, in society as well as 
just credibility that might not exist for other people. So I do agree with you that I hope the Afghan war ends soon. Um, I don't think it is going to end before its 20th birthday, unfortunately, but you are right that nothing goes on forever. And, uh, and, and I hope you're correct about the burgeoning anti-war movement because, um, man, I can't imagine a time that it was more apt than today. Yeah, I agree. Henry, you got anything else? Nope, I'm good. I'm, I'm out right. of stuff. Spencer? All right, cool. Yeah, thanks a, for having me on. Okay. Yeah, it's been awesome. Uh, uh, thanks thanks you, for taking um, the time. Yeah, um, if you guys ever want to come on uh, my show, you know, let's set it up. Yeah, uh, let's do it. We'd yeah, love to. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Are you, Danny, you have what, like 60? I know you're on 90 days of like terminal leave, right? Are you like yeah. where you're at right now? Yeah, so technically I'm still. Um, like on my way out leave, I guess. Um, and you know, my retirement's been approved. And so long as I don't, uh, cause too big of waves, um, yeah. I'll leave it. I will leave with some pretty solid, uh, benefits, thankfully. Wait. Um, but, uh, yeah, no. So I, I, I'd be glad to come on, I, you know, as long as I get my disclaimer shit, it's funny, like the podcasts that I do and the radio interviews, even some of the TV stuff on you know, low-level TV stuff, but whatever. That never seems to draw any attention. I, I wonder if it's because we're inside a certain echo chamber and the right doesn't look at our stuff. But uh, only, yeah. only only the writing has really caused any waves for me. I don't know why that is. That's interesting, yeah. I, I think some of it's probably like the, the algorithms or whatever the fuck. You know, you kind of get this content bubble. Um, right. W- will, you, um, will you be out by the time you're doing your Palestine debate uh, in the city? Uh, or? Yes. Okay. Maybe we should like plan for because that's why I, I was kind of waiting, just because I wanted you to be completely in the clear, and then you yeah, know, you could start kicking the tires and lighting the fires. Oh as yeah, as I as I will. Yeah, I know that's that's that sounds great, and um, I'd be happy to come on then uh, or or before or whenever. But either way, let's get together when I'm in New York for sure. Oh, for sure. Well, and like I said, I'm, I'm going to try to pack the uh, courts, you know, and get you a good crowd when we're yeah, at that. good, good. Yeah, we need we need the BDS crowd there to help me. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again, brother, and we'll talk soon, okay? All right, fellas. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks, right. brother. See you later. All right, All right take care. All right. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read. And remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.